Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Brad Pitt's Abs in Fight Club. Now, let's dim the lights and stare at those abs and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by KMH Gems and Jewelry. Go see the best rocks in New York City, fresh out the ground. You can't beat their prices. Just ask for Howard. Tell him The Pestle sent you. He'll give you a great deal only at KMH Gems and Jewelry. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, everyone, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I'm Todd. And this is a show where we analyze movies, of course, where we try to break them apart. But for the the, the preamble today, I'll just dive right into my <laughs> shenanigans today. We're going to be talking about World War Z, which, of course, stars Brad Pitt. And I got yep. to see so a while ago, a while back, uh, and I use that relatively, I guess this came out in 2013, which does not feel that long ago, but is like a million it's years ago. Way. Yeah. <laughs> and so I used to go to a bunch of screenings all the time, like usually at least one one a month. I just kind of kept my ear to the ground. There's local websites uh, that partner often with Alamo Draft House or some of the other theaters. And so. I caught wind of, you know, they're, oh, they're going to do a screening of World War Z. I was like, okay, you know, I've I've heard that's a really big book. People are excited about it and has Brad Pitt, whatever. And so I got in and right before the movie started, and this was not at a draft house. This was at like a a Regal or something. So this isn't the kind of setup you would expect, but they're like, you know, everyone packs in, you get there an hour early, all this stuff. I'm seated towards the back, which I'll explain why here in a second, but they announced like, oh, hey, we have someone who stopped by to say hello and uh, and thank you. And this guy walks out from, you know, the, the exit door. They open up the exit door and this guy walks in and, and they're like, uh, say hi, Brad Pitt, you know, and the entire theater loses its mind. Like I to me, that's I mean, it's cool. Whatever. It's Brad Pitt. But I'm, I'm so used to this kind of thing. It, and it's not like I'm going to go meet him and hang out and grab a beer and like say, hey, you want to read my shitty script? But it's not like that. So <laughs> I see no real reason to get excited other than, oh, there's a guy like I've been in the same room, whatever. And, you know, a few feet away from Robert Downey Jr. and John Favreau and, you know, all kinds of A-list celebs. And so I am like in shock over how the room erupts. Of course, I also noticed a very specific demographic of the room erupts it's all the all women right? oh, all the guys. Oh, sorry i was yeah <laughs> every woman in that theater jumps up and uh, is like starting to rush down and it's at this point that i should pause and rewind for a second because i did not go to this theater alone <laughs> oh I, no i brought my girlfriend to the showing <laughs> and she and I oh. I just want to paint a, a, a picture here because she jumps up and she's like clawing over me like because she's on the inside. And that's the reason why we're not seated in the front. She wanted to sit towards the back. Um, and I'm like, you know, whatever, make make the lady happy. And so she's like halfway down the aisle. Now, to be fair, she's a, an actor and a model. And so there could be valid reasons to want to meet and hug and, you know, high five Brad Pitt or whatever. But she's not actually like moving people out of the way. She's got some level of decorum, but there is 
a very strong fervor in her eye. <laughs> and I'm just like, wow. And at this point, I do want to pause for one second to say that. And this isn't going to sound the way it's going to sound at first. But she is one of the most beautiful women I've ever, let alone dated, but literally ever met. Like she is drop dead gorgeous, a model, an actor. Um, and she looks like she would have stepped right off of a Victoria's Secret runway. I'm not joking. And the reason I point that out is not to say that, oh, look what I did. Like I, you can't account for taste, right? Like why was she with me? I don't know. People... I'm the weird thing that just happened to be in her taste. Oh, <laughs> so, come on. But the reason I pointed out is because if there's going to be one person in that room that Brad Pitt does notice, <laughs> it, <laughs> it's going it to be, be her. her. And yeah. I know she was probably cursing that, you know, we didn't sit closer or whatever. But it was just one of those moments whenever he says hi and leaves, he's literally there for like five minutes. We don't hear, I don't think we really hear any cool anecdotes. Not that I could have heard it anyway, um, but she comes and sits down and I'm like, yeah, is that, is that, <laughs> did that go the way you wanted it to? She's like, what? <laughs> What's wrong? Yeah. Like, you just I mean, fled yeah. the scene. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder, I wonder if it was like what the, what would have happened in the room if it was like Scarlett Johansson or something. Right. I mean, I guarantee you the men would not jump up and claw over the women to run up to, right. to, we you know, know to, better. We know better. No, no, exactly. There is a double standard in play here for sure. Yeah. 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 And so, That's funny. I will say I spent half the movie kind of revisiting that moment. Like, damn bro. But, also, <laughs> but also kind of, but it you is know, Brad Pitt. It is. It's Brad Pitt. There's no one else I've ever seen. And I had a very brutal realization in my life that I will never command a room like that ever in my mm -hmm. life. It would be like the Beatles yeah. showing up and that's yeah. fine. Like that. It's kind of cool. I guess to see it firsthand, <laughs> maybe to, to, it's like what he says in the film. Like, yeah, no, I was face to face yeah. with it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was faced with it. I with like it. that. <laughs> it's but, funny. It's so, it's so funny. Cause I'm, you know, watching this movie and look, it's a movie they're always going to make him look beautiful, but the dude looks beautiful all the time. Like, you know, I sent you that, or you saw that the, they did a read through of Ferris Bueller or not Ferris Bueller. What was oh, it? Fast uh, Times at Ridgemont Fast High. Fast Times at Ridgemont High and like a bunch of A-list celebs and Brad Pitt was one of them. And by the way, if you have not watched this, immediately Google Table you know, read. Table read of Fast Times Ridge Run High. It it will it will blow your socks off. We gotta put it in the show notes. Copy. Um, because Shia LaBeouf is also in it <laughs> and he amazing. makes it. I mean, I was Absolutely. laughing out loud. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was laughing out loud at that guy. Unbelievable. But I I mean, immediately you see him and immediately you you melt. Like there's something I, okay, I don't think it's necessarily just that he's a good looking guy, right? I think that obviously he is, he's probably the best looking man on the planet, I would say. But I think it's also like we've, he's been in our living rooms for how long? 25 years. Yeah. And we've seen him from, you know, everything from legend of the fall, you know, with long hair and like really super young to uh, meet Joe black to 
and then to fight club and, and, and then this, where he's like an older family man and, and stuff. And, and we've seen him do a lot of different things and he's an unbelievable actor. Like that's the other thing, you know, you can say this is, this guy is a beautiful man, but if he's not a good actor, all of a sudden he's not as attractive. Sure. But because he's so good at what he does and so believable and honest on screen that it, you just cannot help. But like it's it's the the same adage of a rock star of like the Beatles. The girls want to be with you and the guys want to be you. Yeah. Like that's that's it. That's Brad Pitt. And and everything he touches turns to gold. He's just so good at, at it. It's so true. And he's I think because of his level of handsomeness like it kind of takes away from how talented he actually is. He is one of the most criminally underrated actors because of his looks. And you can look at the range and he is, look, I love George Clooney. I think he's a a incredibly talented guy, but he is not as good of an actor. If you just consider breadth of roles, you know, the, the level of range that he has is not held by every single A-list actor. He, you would have to absolutely put him as one of the greats right up there, you know, with, with the Tom Hanks, just the, the level that he can go to. I have now maybe some of these other actors like a Denzel, like a, who did I just say a second? George Clooney, like maybe these guys are as talented and they have that range and they just haven't done it fine very well they need to you know pick some more roles just to to explore those those things but if you look at the the filmography of brad pitt and you go watch all those movies you will see a really wide range of performance styles and it's not just oh brad pitt's kind of doing his thing it's brad pitt is exploring a character and he's bringing it to life and while we're kicking around brad pitt stories i guess you know one of our our we used to have the same agent and one of the the reps there, one, one of our agents, I won't say her name just in case this isn't public and she doesn't want it to be public, but we'll just say KM. KM went on a date with Brad Pitt before his, his heyday, which is a funny story. It was one of those things where she was like, yeah, we I forget if they had like the same manager, or maybe the same agent. She was a model and in L.A. at the time and or maybe New York. I forget, honestly. I, thing is LA, but the agent tried to hook him up and they ran into each other and they're like, yeah, let's go on kind of this impromptu date. And they went, it was a great time and whatever. And it was just the big takeaway for me was that, you know, even before he was anybody, she was like, yeah, he was obviously just drop dead gorgeous, but just a sweetheart. He was a good person. And that's, those are the kind of stories that I want to hear about, you know, people that I admire and look up to is that uh, when it all came down to it, they're, they always seem to be good people. That's just, that's yeah, nice. and you know, I I love that you put him in the same camp as like, like a Tom Hanks because he's been around for a long time. I'm probably going to get railed by people about this, but let's just back up for a second and think about this. Like, it is okay. It's really hard to play uh, so many of the roles that Tom Hanks has played. Very hard, right? I mean, the guy has hit breadth, you know, mm-hmm. infin- infinitum. But I would argue that Pitt has played similar in many cases, not all, obviously, because there's just been so many more movies that Hanks has done because he's so much, he's older. But mm-hmm. I would I would argue that he has that breadth and then one little extra because he can play the heartthrob. Ooh. He has and can. Hanks cannot. And it is very hard to pull off heartthrob and to be believable and for it to be like like to not come off as pompous 
I would argue that's one of the hardest things to do. Like, how do you do that and have the guys be like, yeah. Right. That's so good. I love that point because the, the irony of the comment is that Tom Hanks has played these, you know, uh, rom-coms and he's been in these romantic, uh, films, you know, like a sleeveless in Seattle or, uh, whatever, like some incredibly famous films, but he wasn't the heartthrob. He was just this lovable guy. Uh, and there's such a world of difference. And that is a really good uh, addendum to Brad Pitt because, uh, he's, he's funny. Like go watch burn after reading and tell me Brad Pitt isn't hilarious. Like uh, (laughs) the guy's got chops (laughs) in every which way. (laughs) (laughs) He's amazing. Uh, Watchmen Uh, friends. Like he has a little cameo appearance in friends. Oh, that's right. And he's, he's fantastic. Like I can, you know, so even though I had a terrible experience, I would never want to be in the same room with him ever again. I understood. It hasn't taken away my love of him. I still want to be him. (laughs) Gross. And yet true. I I totally get it. All right. Well, let's get into this because this is going to be a two hour episode. So if you today we're covering World War Z, if you haven't watched it, please pause the episode. Go watch it. We're going to give away a bunch of spoilers, major spoilers. So pause the episode. Go check it out. Absolutely. We'll talk about a few things. We'll touch on cinematography and editing. We'll dive really far into story and writing. We'll talk about the zombie rules of the film, making a hero. We'll touch on the book versus the film adaptation and other such stuff and things and stuff. So a synopsis of the film, former United Nations employee Jerry Lane traverses the world in a race against time to stop a zombie pandemic that is toppling armies and governments and threatens to destroy humanity itself. It's directed by Mark Forster, screenplay by Matthew Michael Carnahan, Drew Goddard, and Damon Lindelof, based on the novel by Max Brooks, cinematography by Ben Saracen, starring Brad Pitt as Jerry, Marielle Enos as Karen, Daniela Curtez as Segan, Fana Mokoena as Theri, and David Morse as ex-CIA, ex-CIA agent. Look, we don't know what we're walking into, so we do what they say. Okay. They move, we move. They stop, we stop. If things were to get crazy, just focus on their boots, focus on their voices, and we'll be all right. Mm-hmm. These guys are hammers, and to hammers, everything looks like nails. I heard that. You were meant to. So you see something that's important, you call it out, and we'll make it happen. Okay. Think we're going to find anything? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to find something. Mother Nature is a serial killer. No one's better, more creative. Like all serial killers, she can't help the urge to want to get caught. But what good are all those brilliant crimes if, if no one takes the credit? So she leaves crumbs. Now, the hard part, why you spend a decade in school, is seeing the crumbs for the clues they are. Sometimes the thing you thought was the most brutal aspect of the virus turns out to be the chink in its armor. And she loves disguising her weaknesses as strengths. It's a bitch. So how many times would you say you've seen this movie? 
Probably six now. Yeah. Nice. Five at least. Yeah. I'm probably north of 10 by this point because, you know, I've been working from home more or less the last eight or nine years. And so more opportunities to, to run across it, I guess. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. Easily, easily uh, in that neighborhood. So the, what do you think of it? Man, I just freaking love this movie. It's, yeah. It's so good. I think one of the things that it really appeals to me is that usually zombie films are these low budget entry level films. It's a kind of a cheap way to to get attention and to get viewers. You don't have to write anything incredibly original. And so you usually get these very small, intimate things. And instead, we got a two hundred million dollar action film with zombies and so for the first time instead of staying in our neighborhood and like oh we're trying to get to the island or we're trying to get to help you know at the major hub and it's this fight to get from point a to point b which is what most zombie films are and that's fine i love zombie films it's like one of my favorite genres but instead of that we're like running all over the world this is the first time i feel like we've ever seen what the the zombie outbreak looks like in multiple places and how multiple places are handling it and so if for no other reason just the fact that we're getting this very cool tour around the world that's just very satisfying to me and it's fresh eyes on a and this was a to me a risky film to make from the standpoint of this is 2013 well after kind of the zombies have had their their run of the mill Mm-hmm. and they decided to do it anyway which is cool i yeah I, so i love it and for other reasons i'm sure I'll, I'll hit on at some point but what about you like you i if you've seen it five times that's a lot for you i love it it's 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 probably my favorite zombie movie just because like i love others you know that we've covered on this on this here mm-hmm. uh, a whole lot but it th- just for ease of watch and rewatch, it doesn't beat this for me. You know, I can go and watch, you know, a 28 days later or something. It, it's just, you know, this is just at the most rewatchable zombie film I've ever seen. And I would say a lot of it is because of Brad Pitt. I will be honest, but not just because he's beautiful, just because like you so want him to win. You know, you believe he loves his family and wants to get back to him. You, you, you know, you believe that the world is literally crumbling and that it is, it, I mean, it's good. Your, your synopsis was good. It is a race against time. And you have the whole time, you have no idea how he's going to stop this. And it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And you still just, there is no end in sight. And then, but there are clues. And it's so funny because watching it multiple times, you see all these clues, you know, in the first one, I think the first one is when they're running to the after the the their RV got stolen and they're running to the the apartment building the apartment building yeah. and the drunk outside the zombies are running past the drunk and it just it shows the drunk twice like it cuts back to him like it cuts to him and he's just sitting there drinking and then the, it cuts to him one more time and the zombies running past him clue le, le, bread crumb le, number one and then there's a couple others and you're like what is what is that you know and I. The first time I watched it, I didn't realize it was like a terminally ill thing. I just, you know, like the 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 bald kid in Jerusalem, I was like, oh, I, I just for some reason didn't think he was sick. Right. Yeah. Just because you're bald doesn't mean you're sick. And I just thought, you know, whatever. And then later I realized, oh, okay, it, you have to be terminally ill. He probably had cancer or something. And how how much you have to pay attention to why he's going from one place to the other 
you know, <laughs> he starts in the first place and then he talks to that guy with ripping his own teeth out. <sighs> Insanity. He tells him to go to Jerusalem. And normally, why would a crazy dude who's ripping his why would you listen to a crazy dude who's ripping <laughs> his teeth out? Well, I got no nowhere else to go. Let's we're gonna do that. And then you're thinking, then as Jerusalem's getting overrun, you're like, oh, where the heck is he going to go now? And then, you know, the whole WHO thing, it just is, you have to really pay attention. And there's little things that happen along the way to give you a little bit of information about, about the zombies themselves or the, the pandemic or like how it responds to X or Y or whatever. And yeah, it's just, it's so, so good. And the other thing is that like, I like stressful movies but only to a point like I can't, I, I can't watch super stressful mo- movies over and over and over again. And this movie was stressful, but it was, it was fun at the same time for whatever reason. I, I don't, I think it just wasn't super gory. And normally I'm all for the gore in this case. Cause that gore is real, you know, like that really all, all would happen and it's gory, but not like some others. Anyway, I love it. No, I think that's all true. And I think the other satisfying thing is most zombie films do rely on that high octane stress of this one takes a completely different approach, which we'll definitely dive into uh, in detail. But from a high level, basically, most most zombie films have this thing like, oh, so and so is bitten. When are they going to turn? Are they going to keep it hidden? Are they going to tell the group? Um, And it's always about these interrelational group dynamics of we're observing the human condition and how it falls apart under duress. And this movie really isn't about that. This isn't about exploring how humanity falls apart. It's, it's more about trying to discover how humanity rises to the occasion. And that's a, it's a different experience. You don't get this kind of experience out of most zombie films. And so you take one of these beloved characters, the zombie, and you, you do something completely fresh and original with it. And that makes it very exciting and, and removes a lot of the stressors that make a lot of zombie films not as rewatchable. Like I love 20 days later, but I'm not going to watch it 10 times in a row. I've probably only seen that, you know, four or five times as opposed to this where I've seen it, you know, 10 or 15 different experiences and different things that I want out of both of those experiences. And I'm grateful to have it. Uh, And it it also makes sense too, because again, this came out in 2013, whereas zombie films have been coming out since 1968, you know, since the original uh, George Romero night of the living dead, this has been a trope or or a running style a running genre, you know, for what, 50 years, 52 years. And so after a certain point, it makes sense to want to try something else and to expand not necessarily the uh, the mythology but expand the 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 style of it and what's at the stakes and i love that they did that they made they said hey let's let's go from straight you know horror action to you know more of a i don't even know this isn't a, i wouldn't call it necessarily a drama but it's an action slash I don't know, research film. I don't even know what to, to kind of slash this into, but some kind of sub drama genre somewhere in there. I don't know. It's intellectual ish. Yeah. 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 I'll just run through a few things. I think not a lot to touch on with cinematography and editing. Uh, I just wanted to throw a few things out there that it, it opens with a lot of stable shots, a lot of stable tracking. One of the things, and I like to look for these very small things that no one really gives a shit about, but I kind of log away into my, 
cinematography brain. And some of these things I already do, some things I, I, I'm watching and I'm like, oh yeah, that's how you handle that kind of shot. Like the one of the things that I do know is whenever the the cop breaks the window, right? They're in the car, they're on their way to the uh, wherever school to drop the kids off. The They're in traffic and the cop, motorcycle cop kind of zooms past and breaks the, the side view mirror. And the way they shoot that little shot there is, you know, they were looking at the side view mirror and then the cop zooms and breaks and it's a quick tilt up. And it's all in one nice smooth motion. So instead of like having an edit there in two shots, just a simple tilt up uh, allows you to, I don't know, create a sense of pacing and a sense of action that really helps sell the effect and like the the what the hell just happened of it that the family's then reacting to. Cause you know, we we tilt up and then we immediately cut to the reaction shots of everyone in the car. And then from that point on, things start to destabilize, you know, into more handheld, like the explosion downtown, right? He gets out of his car and we're still a little stable. And he's talking to the other guy and the guy's checking on him like, everything all right? He's like, yeah, it's jackass, you know, didn't even stop. And then the explosion happens. And at that point, we go very handheld, a lot of movement, heavy shaking. And from here on, there's just a ton of chaos, right? He starts chasing the, the garbage truck as it's running out of control, kind of creating a path. And now his daughter's yelling and she's hiding. And we have all this kind of chaos that's happening inside and outside the car and just adds to the environment. And it all feels honest to me, like her reaction. That's how kids react. As much as I love these, you know, precocious kids who are above their age. I also appreciate films like this where you see kids acting like kids and mm -hmm. doing things kids would do. And that's something 100% a kid would do. They'd freak out. Yeah. They wouldn't respond. They'd get on hide. the floorboard. Yeah. Annoy the yeah. shit out of you. To hide. hide. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so after they crash, there's all these really fast cuts, not just, you know, around the, the wreck, but around the crowd. We're kind of panning and quick cutting to kind of create the, uh, the havoc of everything that's happening in the environment. And I love that style of shooting personally. I love quick cuts. I love panning and those two things interacting with each other almost doesn't feel like you're cutting the edits don't even feel like edits anymore. And I think that just adds to the pace and the frantic nature of everything. And a lot of this film, you know, as things are happening, as the chaos is breaking out, is very frantic. There's a very high amount of pacing and the editing really shoots up to the point where if you look away, you're probably going to miss something throughout a lot of the, I would say like 75, 80% of the film. If you, if you look away for more than, you know, two seconds, you're probably going to miss something. And it really demands your attention. And I, I respect that about this film. I think it works once you know the film, uh, it works for casual viewing. But if you casually view it once or twice and then come back and really focus on it, you're going to get rewarded with information that you're like, oh, I didn't remember that happening. Like, I forgot there was a nuke that goes off in the airplane. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I was just like, yeah. whoa, that happened. It feels fresh again. That's that's a great moment. I just love that little effect because it just adds so much more to that global nature that I was talking about earlier that you get a sense of the scale of what's happening around the world. How about the fact that it starts almost immediately? Like, I mean, not immediately, you know, you have to introduce the character or whatever, but characters, but you have five minutes, five minutes until something happens and then it never stops. That's great. That is, that is film writing 101, get to the meat. Like yeah. that in, in, in music that it's, it's called don't bore us, get to the chorus. <laughs> 
that's it. Like you have to be at the chorus by 30 seconds. Really? Like it's, it's for real. So it makes sense for a film too. Like, especially a film like this, just get straight into it. Don't tell us where it came from at the end. Don't give any kind of backstory. Just it happens because that's the experience for like most people right? They don't even know what's happening. All of a sudden they're being bitten by a zombie. Yep. Like that's how probably this would happen, you know? <laughs> no, that's yeah. such a great point. Yeah. Like we're five minutes in and then suddenly like shit is hitting the fan. And I love that. Don't bore us, get to the chorus. That's, mm-hmm. and they make a great use, like because the first probably 60 seconds, to 60 to 90 seconds is it's just title and even in the title sequence they're kind of setting the stage with what we're dealing with because there's all this news footage and we're looking at you know oceans and clouds and nature and mankind and people traveling we're getting a sense of you know how closely these environments are tied together um they're intercutting right the travel restrictions and the warnings on the news with like entertainment how the information is right there in front of us but we're actually just zoning out to daytime talk shows and, you know, people calling it a hoax or whatever, which the more we talk about this film, the more it's going to have a lot of reflection to 2020, even though <laughs> anyway. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. I think that was actually the last time I watched it was the beginning of the year. Mm, uh, yeah, that makes sense. My wife and I went on a went on a tirade. <laughs> you know, we watched a bunch of this pandemic movies because why not? Yeah, that tracks. And so going into like some some of the story and writing stuff, they established the zombie rules pretty quick. Like the first time we see them, they're sprinting everywhere. So we one thing right off the box, check zombies are fast. Okay. I also love that they use a toy to count how long to become infected and how long it takes someone to turn, uh, which gives us this really strong sense of the scale. Because now we have a frame of reference, which is useful later when we find the source of the outbreak, right? It took five to 10 minutes to turn when it began. And now it's sped up to, it takes 12 seconds, you know, to for, for someone to go from being bitten to actively, you know, infecting others, which is good biology. Viruses seem to lose potency over time. The more deadly the virus is, the less it's able to spread. And so I like that the idea that the uh, the incubation period kind of is getting faster and faster as it's able to spread. And I suspect as, you know, if this thing were to keep playing out, assuming that it didn't run out of people first, that, you know, it would, it would begin to lose, you know, some of its, uh, devastating effects but i love you know kind of the the dealing with biology this is a very thoughtful movie in that way they had some some thought behind it and so it it also explores you know as far as zombie rules go it gets the blood in his mouth right and he he doesn't turn so it also tells us that you know it's bites only you know this isn't this isn't uh, flag football. This is two below. You know, this is kind of giving us the, mm-hmm. the frame of mind of how the virus spreads. Um, and, and it just slowly keeps building. When we meet with the soldiers in Korea, we learn that they're drawn to noise. And of course, we learn headshots are good. Um, burn the bodies just to be safe if you can. Just slowly building out, you know, what it means, what zombies are in this universe. And even just as good because it's called World War Z. I also appreciate that zombie, the word itself, is a point of conversations, which is rare in zombie films. Mm-hmm. Like, norm- yeah, 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 good point. Normally, you know, that's just something that they don't say. It's like the dead are back alive. And that's fine. I mean, there's a reason for all that. But uh, at this stage in the game, to not say the word zombie almost feels 
eye rolly. Like it works for movies up to a certain point. And I would call like 2010 that cutoff. Like if you make a zombie film after 2010, you probably need to touch on the idea that zombies are a cultural, you know, point of reference that it's just not, but and most zombies films treat it as what is this thing? Like there is no zombie culture that this isn't a, a, you know, point of reference, you know, in, in our society. And so I appreciate that it is. And it's a talking point, even in Israel, whenever they're discussing like, how, how did you know to that these were zombies? And it's like, well, I saw when you said the word zombie, that it meant zombie. Like, and we went, mm-hmm. we built from there. And so that's a really nice part. And that is one of those extra things that makes this a refreshing movie. I also love that there are constant consequences and heroic choices that are being made throughout the entire film. Like at the beginning, whenever they're in that, that drugstore and he's trying to scare away. I don't know what these guys are. Are they trying to rape his wife or are they trying to rob her? Oh, I, I guess. Yeah. I think they're, I don't know. they're like attacking her, whatever the case is. And I love that. He's trying to scare them away by showing the gun in a really non-threatening manner. Right. He's kind of holding it up like, Hey, Hey, I'm here. I'm not trying to use this, but you know, back up. And of course that doesn't work out for them. And he's also like trying to rescue the Latin family in the apartment complex. He offers them advice like, Hey, I used to run these kind of operations, which is great exposition for, for us to hear about why he's doing what he's doing and who he is. We're slowly building out our frame of reference for who this guy is and why he's important to the story. And so he's giving them advice while we're as exposition for us. It's beautiful storytelling, but then he's also offering to help them. He's like, you should come with us, come with me, you know, let me, let me save you. And of course they, they refuse and it ends up getting them all killed except for their son, which he also takes with them. Consequences like going to South Korea was it had a lot of consequences. It killed their virologist, right? Their, their superhero, he dies and leaving, we, you know, we, we see more soldiers die and even some that we like, right? We see the, their, their captain, right? Who, you know, mm-hmm. gets bitten and he kills himself. What I love, love, love about that sequence is once we leave Korea, those guys are all irrelevant. Now they're not going to have any part in the story moving forward. So why not use them? And a really great way that adds emotional impact to the story. And now instead of just, you know, us waving to them out of the plane window, he has to sacrifice himself for the greater good of this mission. And now, you know, so much more is riding on him because whenever he arrived, that same guy already gave him shit about you coming here cost us a 23 year old man. Now tell us why that was worth it. Mm -hmm. And, And now that guy is sacrificing himself and he has to believe that what they're doing is also worth it. And it's just a really fantastic use. It's really, really great writing to maximize every character that we're coming into contact with. Love it. Another thing, like if you're going to have a hero, you got to make bad situations for the guy so that he can demonstrate his ability. Like right off the bat, we're on the plane ride to, you know, Korea and we establish a game plan. Okay. We're going to he's just here to escort this best hope who has all the knowledge. Great. Easy. This is in his wheelhouse. Okay, now what if we kill that guy? (laughs) Yeah. What are you going to do now? Like, show us how good you are. Show us why you deserve to be the the man. And then he you know, that becomes a, a story point moving forward. But they do this time and time again. They rip this guy's tools away from him over and over and over again at the beginning, right? They destroy his car. They put him in a car wreck and now 
he has to move on foot. It looked like he was going to have an easy getaway. Oh, it's really easy to get away from zombies in your car. So, okay, well, let's destroy his car. And then let's destroy his, his RV. Let's destroy his airplane, his helicopter. Let's take away the scientists in the hospital at the end that's going to tell him which viruses he needs to grab. Like, yeah. he kind of knew, but I guarantee the things they're telling him in one room are not the things that are labeled on those vials. <laughs> like, there's there's common names. There's, you know, the cold or the flu. And then there's, like, the rhinovirus. Like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. if you don't know these things and he, he doesn't, like, it really puts him in a position. And so they're constantly taking away all his tools. Even I love the- how I, – I lo- can I just interrupt you real fast? Please. I love how – impatient he is though (laughs) he's so impatient in the movie when when they're they're sneaking around in the lab and he's letting them sneak under and he's telling them when to go or stop or whatever and then she's saying like he's like he's like oh god and he just goes (laughs) right and then when he's when he injects himself he's like uh i'm just gonna do this one yeah. And he just does it. And then he waits and he's like, I'm not going to wait anymore. Yeah. Let's, let's do it. Opens the door, you know, just like very decisive and not just decisive, but impatient. Yeah. But you kind of, yeah, it, it kind of like sets him, uh, sets him up as like, it kind of sets him up as the authority figure. That's because a, he just does things. Yeah, and that's a good yeah. point, too, because I also think it reflects on what he says at the beginning about you have to stay moving or you die. And so part of his yes, mentality yes. is I can't wait here forever or else it's going to get me killed one way or another. So uh, it's now or never. And so he is focused on, you know, progressing. And it's funny, I'm playing the film in the background and he, that scene right now is happening. She just waves him away and he's giving him this frustrated look. You're right. She doesn't wave him on. He just kind of makes his own. Yeah, decision. he just goes. He just goes. <laughs> I remember the first time. The first time I saw that movie, I thought, "Whoa, what the hell? He, he got some balls." <laughs> yeah. Wow. But even like the axe, he's about to uh, like leave his tool. This is the, his protection, and now he's about to leave it in a door because this is the best way to protect ourselves. The story just keeps ripping away every one of his advantages and making him get more resourceful. And that's the best thing for a hero is you force him to be a hero. And so I want to touch on that. I was kind of really paying attention to why this guy, the all the revelation of a hero in the opening. Like we learned that Jerry has a background working in scary situations. We don't really know what that means that, until, you know, he gets to the apartment and he kind of fills us in like, oh, yeah, he used to be in these war zones um, during, you know, upheavals and liberation movements or what have you. But the 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 great thing about him, and this is classic Joseph Campbell hero mythology stuff, is that he's a reluctant hero. There's a there's a call to it to help, you know, uh, kind of a call to adventure, if you will. And he declines it. Like, he's like, no, I'm not going to put my, I'm not going to leave my family. I'm going to go it alone rather than put myself in a situation, in a bad situation. But of course he's forced to help because there is nowhere safe. And I love that we explore that for a moment. He doesn't just take the first lifeline he gets. He is forced to learn that without, without me doing this thing, 
I am going to get my family killed. And so returning to the UN is the only way to protect his family. He exhausts every other option. And throughout the film, we're really showing his intelligence and his poise during chaotic moments. He's always observing. His head is always up. Like if you look at his posture, he's never hanging his head. He's never down. His head is always up. We're always cutting to what he's seeing. Like we're always watching him observe something. And then we cut to it. We see what he's observing constantly, right? He watches the guy get bitten and turn and he, he keeps track. He's listening to the, the toy count and he's watching this guy's as it's happening. Um, very observant. He follows the garbage truck, right? He's very smart. This is our exit path. He's talking to his wife. And right, the, I love this moment where he tapes the magazines around his forearms. That's so freaking brilliant. And it's so obvious. It's one of those things where you're like, yeah, of course, that's what I would have done if I was him <laughs> or I would have gotten bitten and immediately. <laughs> immediately. But and in some movies, in some movies that can come off as, oh, he knows too much. But mm. in this movie that doesn't, it's 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 almost like what is it, a grown up version of a zombie movie. You know, I'm sure that this character has probably seen zombie movies hmm. like this character, not yeah. Brad Pitt, but, you right. know, and and so they're think he's thinking, OK, this might be a zombie apocalypse. OK, what do I do? OK, this person's getting bit. I'm going to watch him. I'm going to count, see what happens, you know, and he's doing that from the very beginning. So I think that even though you and I wouldn't last as, as long as him, probably, but I think that we would probably try to do the same thing. I think that most people would probably that have seen zombie movies would probably try to do a, a similar thing. And I love too, you know, because you're right. He probably has that. And I love that they don't lean on that. They don't say it out loud. I want it acknowledged that there's zombies in this universe, cultural awareness, that kind of thing, pop culture, but also don't want it to be overbearing. I don't want them to constantly be making those references. And so he doesn't like put on a full suit of armor. He has a very strategic method and it's the forearms only. This is going to be my shield. This is how I, I brace myself if I get into, you know, a, a corner and it's targeted, it's specific. And it's just, it, it gives you the level of intelligence without making you roll your eyes. And that's a yeah. fine line to walk. And they do a really fantastic job of it because I also love that he does that and we see it tested. And it works, right? Uh, it's important to show his intelligence is rewarded and also tested. And so whenever he gets to the rooftop, he closes the building and uh, the zombies break the little glass like he has that there. And we know we feel safe and we feel like, oh, that was a smart move. It's paying off, even though we never see like the bite. I don't we didn't need that insert to know that it's working. If you show the insert, you almost start to wonder like, Oh, is it going to hold up? And then you start to question the the intelligence of it. Like maybe you should have used two magazines, <laughs> but instead just kind of hinting at it allows you to kind yeah. of get that satisfaction of it, you know, and his intelligence. Again, I'm kind of going through all the, the smart things about this character. The, the whole soldier's hand, you know, uh, gets bitten and he chops it off to save her life. This is such a great sequence. We never actually see the hand get cut off. We see the reactions, right? We see the blood spurt. We see his movement. We have a spatial geography of what's happening. And so it all clicks in our mind. But instead of leaning into the violence, kind of what you're saying earlier, we kind of lean away from it. We mute the audio down, right? Like I not literally muted, but I, I'm, I used to play 
trumpet in a jazz band. And when you put a mute in a trumpet, it doesn't kill the noise. It retards it. You know, it kind of puts it, it dulls it a little bit. And so having that kind of muted audio with the heartbeat and the counting, like you can feel him keeping track of, is she going to turn? Is my gambit going to pay off? Uh, it's very dramatic. And we're watching with bated breath because we don't know the answer yet. And we're just waiting to see, is he going to have to kill this woman? Which again, not easy to do. You don't want to kill women on screen. And so we're really dreading the idea that our hero, this guy who's been very sacrificial, right? He has that great moment where he's willing to die if he's infected on that rooftop. He sprints out of the building and he hovers over the edge. And we're like, is he going to kill himself? Don't do it. Uh, and he's waiting. He's counting. And he was willing to do that to protect his family. So we have a lot of love for this guy. And now we're waiting to see if, if he's going to have to kill this woman who we've never even met. This is kind of our first time you know, running into this woman. And I love that because we get onto the plane and she's picking his brain like, how'd you know that was going to work? I didn't. <laughs> it was worth the shot, though. And I, I love that because a number of things for for one, it gives him his final clue to solve the puzzle. But also it adds to the chaos of the world that we're not hanging with the same people throughout this entire movie. It's not like he and his family against the world, like people are coming and going because that's the way it would be in, in this environment where there's always people dying and, you know, he has a buddy and now he doesn't. So we meet this woman who becomes important for, you know, a short time frame, and we never met her before. Like we're, he's learning her name, you know, two thirds of the way into the movie is like, what's your name? Sagan or Segan or whatever, you know, however she pronounced it. And he's like, first or last. I love that question. First or last. <laughs> Just Sagan. <laughs> yeah. It's genius. I love that. And with that same idea that this is a sacrificial character, I love that whenever he talks to his wife after leaving Korea, he doesn't tell her what her phone call cost him. Yeah. The because it got a lot of people killed. And it's one of those things where, again, let's put our... What good would it do? What good would it do? It's not going to help her, you know. Um, it's not going to help him for sure. And so it's just like, you know what? Let's move on. And you kind of love him for that. Because you're... I The first time I'm watching this, I'm anticipating, uh, is he going to tell her what that her last call did? Nah. he's He's bigger than that. And so he's just a really, really good guy. And and I think that kind of answers, generally speaking, answers why, you know, why this guy at this time? It's because there was no one else. He stepped up when nobody else was there to step up. It wasn't because, you know, this is our last hope. It was there's just literally no one else that can do it. Uh, that's even thinking about it. Like we get to Korea and these guys aren't even leaving their base. And these guys were basically more or less ground zero. And so there's just no real way to to expect anyone else is doing anything about it. And so we get the idea that all cultures are kind of, you know, dealing with it in their own way. But anyway, so adapting World War Z, I did read this book and I enjoyed the book. But if I'm going to be completely honest, I like the movie more. I understand a lot of people hate the movie who love the book. I get that. They do. But to me, yeah, they do. They, the, the book is such a wildly different thing in, in a lot of ways because it's an accumulation of uh, stories. It's basically one guy after the apocalypse has been resolved. There's a guy who goes around interviewing people who's from the UN and he's going around collecting stories. 
from different cultures to get a wide perspective of all the, you know, both random and key figures of how did you manage to, you know, have your village stand up against the zombie apocalypse. And you hear about all these sacrifices that were made and, you know, kids who survived in downtown Tokyo and that kind of stuff. And so it's just this really wide collection of stories that are very smart. And so I think you see Mm. something like World War Z and you're like, y'all are just taking the name and bastardizing the book. And I don't think that's fair. And I will definitely get into why here in a second. But this movie, I think, is spiritually faithful to the book. It's looking at a zombie apocalypse as a viral outbreak that can be solved with science. And in that way, I think there's a lot of intelligent tactics that are in full force of the movie that are, even if not explicitly looked at in the book, it's uh, spiritually still there. The book is still taking the idea that zombies were our real thing. It's kind of like it's 2002, and real 2002, a zombie outbreak happens. And so you have Romero and all the zombie films of yore and everyone deals with it accordingly. And then afterwards, whatever. And so there's a very astute observation of, well, in this situation, here's how you want to do it. Here's how you want to, you know, deal with this kind of pandemic. And so with that, even though this book, this movie isn't really doing and going through all those little details of the of the book, it's still spiritually talking about all the intelligent tactics that are kind of, you know, sprinkled in. So like in Korea, we're, we're talking to, you know, David Morsey, the uh, ex-CIA agent who was a gun runner or whatever, and he's pulling his teeth out. Right. And he's talking about, you know, in North Korea, how in three to four hours, the dictator, I don't know if at this point it was Kim Jong-un or Kim Jong-il, but effectively ripped all the population, you know, had their teeth ripped out. No bite, no way to spread, everyone's safe. And so there's a a strategy, there's an intelligent view of here's one way to, to squash this thing. You also have the soldiers that are strategizing, right? He's before they go and rush everybody, escort everybody to the plane and fill up the tank and all that there. He's like, hey, don't rush. Get the guy, get Zeke, get the zombies on the ground. The knees work just fine, you know. And so there's 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 strategy, there's tactics in Israel. I love the idea that every zombie, every human we save is one less zombie to fight. Like it looks from the outside like, oh, you're you're being really kind to let all these people in. They're like, eh, (laughs) there's selfish motivation here. (laughs) And they also have like the 10th man philosophy, right? The 10th man has to agree with the other nine people. And it's a philosophy that kind of came out of Holocaust, uh, for lack of a better term, denialism. The idea that Jewish people weren't looking at what Hitler was doing as a real thing that was going to happen to them. And of course, they came out of that situation and said, we need to learn from this and came up with the 10th man as a response. It's very heady stuff. I love the, you know, the, the chopping their arm off the, to save the soldier. The idea that in Israel, the, the singing and the celebration is a signal to the zombies and the horde climbs the wall. They're punished. Uh, there's very intelligent looks at all this stuff in the WHO lab, right? They're, they're, he learned from his first lesson, these, these magazines, the braces, the gauntlets, they work. So I'm going to tape stuff to my arms and to the other people that I'm with. They're all getting taped up. And I love that. As as Jerry is the last man standing in the in the lab, everyone else had to get out. He's about to break open the lab. He's got his crowbar out and he's about to crack a window open and he gets a call like he's like, oh, what up? 
yeah, here's a code, you know, to get into that. You don't got to break yeah. that window. Intelligence over brawn, I feel like is just stressed again and again throughout the movie. And it's, it's very smart. I, I really appreciate it. And so in that way, I think it's, you know, spiritually faithful, if not literally uh, adapted. And with that in mind, the ending, I think, was really fantastic. And I think to understand that, you have to understand that the original ending was supposed to be, this was a rewrite. The original ending was supposed to take place in Russia. And it was supposed to be this massive action sequence at night where they're testing out his theory that the weakness of the, of the, the virus is weakness in humanity. So let's infect ourselves and make ourselves invisible and then we'll like take out a bunch of zombies. And they even have one of the sequences. Uh, it's just I'm watching it right now. Like the zombies are flooding a stadium and they ex- they blow up the stadium and the zombies are rushing up to the side of the building and they're flamethrowing, you know, the the huge zombie horde. That's all part of that original ending that they were just like, OK, well, we spent all this money on this probably cost, you know, 20 to 30 million dollars to to shoot. Oh. And they didn't even finish it. They didn't didn't even finish all the effects for that entire sequence. They just got into the editing and said that this isn't working. We're exhausted from all the other action sequences. We need something a lot more quiet. And so instead of an action packed ending, they rewrote it and they brought in Lindelof and Drew Goddard. Like he if if that name sounds familiar, it's because he also wrote Cabin in the Woods. So he's a Mm. pretty trusted guy with with writing. He's got a bunch of other credits, I'm sure that are not springing to mind, but they brought Lindelof who I am not a fan of and Goddard and to rewrite this ending. They looked at it from the point of the plane crash. Whenever they're on the plane, he throws a grenade and they barely survive from that point on was a new ending. And they came in and they rewrote and said, okay, instead, instead of all that, we're going to give us an intimate ending because we are exhausted from all the action. And I love it because it's a more intellectual use of the epiphany instead of another massive fight sequence. How much are we really going to get out of that? And instead of an action sequence, it gives us a more classically intimate encounter with zombies, right? Narrow escapes, close calls, tiptoeing, no easy escapes, trapping, getting trapped. We're now sensitized to noise and movement, which is a great contrast to all the fast, loud action sequences that we had up until this point. So it's the perfect change of pace. The shots are even much more stable, like in the hospital, a lot more locked off, subtle hand movement kind of shots. So much better. Invading the West Wing. I love the uh, (laughs) I love that the Israeli soldier with one hand is still more effective than the scared doctors with two hands. She still goes (laughs) on the (laughs) mission. I love it. Because that's what she does, man. And when Jerry infects himself, I love that the uh, the doctors that are observing, right? They're watching on a monitor and they're asking our thoughts. They're they're kind of acting as exposition for the audience because we have these same questions and thoughts. Like, how long does he have to wait? And they just kind of tell us, yeah, not long. But that's that's not the real question we're asking, not, is it? Yeah. And so they, they both, like, is it 30 minutes? Is it an hour? Is it six hours? What, what, what is it? Well, no, I think the, uh, the great part is not long kind of answers that it's like, it almost doesn't matter because we're going to do a, a, a time jump anyway, but, oh, okay. but yeah. they're, they're kind of answering that question of, yeah, it's not necessarily how long it takes for him to be infected. That's not the real question we're asking. The real question is, will it work? Mm-hmm. And in that point we are waiting. He opens up the, 
the door, right? Like you said, he's like, yeah, whatever, let's get it on. <laughs> and he opens the door and he's face to face with a zombie who is a great performer, man. I freaking love that performance. Uh, it's idiosyncratic. It feels honest. It feels very true. And it, it plays really well. And of course, you know, it, it works and he's kind of walking out. I love the, he drinks a soda, then unleashes a rack of them and they're crashing to the floor. And then as he's strolling down the hallway, right, the zombies start flying past him. And this is kind of our moment of like victory. Like we're just we're watching someone not be bitten. That's the yeah. climax. It's not we killed him. There was a big explosion. The climax is we're witnessing him be immune to the, the zombies themselves. And that's a very I've never seen that kind of ending before. Maybe in any kind of movie, let alone a zombie film. And so that is just a completely fresh take and a cinematography kind of aside, if you will. As he's walking down the hallway, there's a classic thing in cinematography of crossing patterns are great. Um, and so whenever the zombies are running towards us, we're, we're tracking behind Brad Pitt, Jerry, as he's walking up the hallway and we have two types of zombies that are running at us. There's some that are going straight down on the on the sides of the hallway. And then there's those that are cutting in front of him to create this crossing pattern. And that's just for visual interest. Like you want it to be more exciting and more visually interesting. And crossing patterns usually look better with the camera. Now, I'm sure in their case, they did both just in case, because there could be something if this was shot a little differently, if this was like an aerial shot you may not want those crossing patterns because if you're looking down and then you have all these crossing patterns, it kind of takes away this Moses parting the sea effect. And so it just kind of depends on the, the frame of what's going to look best. And so usual good, good rule of thumb is do both. <laughs> like <laughs> try them both, see what works, see what you like in editing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that I had, a, I did have a one question though about, cause I, I loved that zombie at the end too, but, did you notice there are two different kinds? So there's the kind. So the first guy he sees turn when he turns, his eyes are like this, like faded color. Right. Yeah. But those zombies, those doctor zombies at the end weren't like that. I mean, even the zombie that they had, the the black zombie that they had trapped. Uh-huh. Right. She like, I think had something going on with her eyes, but not, not like they did in the beginning. Like the zombies, there were two different kinds. There's a zombie with like the faded eye pupil and there's the zombies that don't have faded pupils. Uh, or they, they're just different. Yeah. I, I mean, I think they're, they're all kind of just like blue eyed. I think one of the problems with the hospital is that we have the fluorescent lighting and it might be washing out the effect a little bit, but it's a lot. It's like totally noticeable. Are it's you saying like it's different. a white eye versus uh, a pupil eye or an iris? Yeah, so the first guy that we see, that he sees turn that he counts the to 12 with the 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 child's toy. Uh-huh. When he actually turns and stands up, you know, he has this like, you know, the camera does this cool really cool straight down shot on him as his head tilts back or whatever and his yeah. eyes are like flat white. No, they're they're a little bluish. They're faded, but not flat white. I'm looking at stills right now. They're like, if you Google Same different World War Z zombie eyes and look at Google images, I think because maybe because of his skin tone and the daylight nature of it, it kind of mm -hmm. flushes it out a little bit more because they look a little light blue to me. 
And I think that's one of those things where our eyes have melanin that if you remove the melanin, I think the eyes all mm. become blue. And so uh, blue eyed people are actually lacking melanin in the eyes from what I understand, which is why. Uh, yeah, but his eyes looked so different than the, the doctor at the end. Huh? To me. I don't know. I'm trying to look at the other Like ones. when he's walking past him, you get a really good look at his eyes and they're just anyway. The, yeah. Anyway. Curious. Yeah. I mean, they it might just be their way of acknowledging, you know, this thing is progressing or maybe it's evolving in some way. I think that would play just and as it's, well. It's, it's not crazy. really like their, on, though. their teeth too, man. It's like all of a sudden their teeth are all like messed up. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy cool. <laughs> Don't y'all guys brush? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh okay all right that explains that yeah so more or less i think the other small shot that i like and again this is a silly basic af shot going way back to cinematography uh is in the hospital whenever he's walking towards us after getting past that first doctor and he's kind of walking down that first hallway out of the that little inner lab with the deadly virus lab we're this was a mental note for me because sometimes I think about like, how do I want to approach this scene? And the, the camera is moving backwards at a slow pace, slower than he's walking. So he's a dancing on the camera, but the camera is also moving and the camera kind of slides on a steady cam and he just slides from dead center to just to his right so that he can, you know, walk past the, the camera and in the shot. I think a lot of, you know, new camera operators forget to let people enter and exit the, the frame. <laughs> yeah. And so I just I'm always interested, interested to see how pros like to see their actors come and go. And that was just kind of this little like, ah, yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it was just so entertaining. It's so much fun and and, and really, really s smart and well written. So God. I'm glad that you had the same experience. Same. Again. Yeah. You know, final notes, thoughts, just that. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's enjoyable. I think that we cut back to the family enough to remind us, but not, you know, it's good that he leaves them at some point. I mean, I do also like movies where, you know, the hero or heroine never leaves the side of the person they're trying to save, but they feel safe yeah. to us. They're on the ship. It feels safe for him to leave, in which case, you know, otherwise they hold him back from saving the entire world. Right. So that, that makes sense. So they put him in a good scenario for that. And I love that they, they kick him off the ship as soon as he is no longer yeah. in touch. And exactly. that, that removes that sense of safety. And now the stakes get, you know, ramped up very satisfyingly. And it shows how extreme, you know, that <laughs> how extreme they'd have to be, yeah. you know, in a situation like that, it's not just like, Oh, he did something good. So we can keep, you know, he gave his life so we can, you know, keep him on the ships. Like, sorry, everyone's dying right yeah. now. So. You're not special. Yeah. Yeah. But at least that they got to great. go to Canada where all good people <laughs> go. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, man. Nice. So, any, I'm trying to think. I've been watching this movie for so many years and I feel like I've been saving this. And once it's done, once once we, we wrap, we wrap. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I know we've been talking about doing World War Z for probably a <laughs> so year now. I don't want to leave anything left unsaid, Brad. <laughs> Me either. Was there any, was there ever a moment you felt out of it? That no. It, that it I, well, a little bit. I would say one of the, the things that 
art I found interesting was the uh, the CG, right? The zombie CG. Yeah. In contrast with other ones, I felt like it was necessary whenever because they didn't always use CG. It wasn't like every time you see a zombie, they picked their moments and usually it was you know, we're throwing them off of roofs and we're having them do uncanny things like pile together to build a bridge over a wall. And so it worked for me. It it kind of strikes me. And then I just kind of get back in because like they swarm and they flood the, the bus and they knock the bus over. And so it kind of helps to dehumanize all these these people that are about to get slaughtered because I think it's it's not good to see so many people die and to humanize them too much because they need to be a threat, not something that we pity. And so it makes sense. It works for me in a, in a very logical sense, but it's also still noticeable. It's one of those things where you're like, yeah, you know what? I personally would have preferred a slightly different color grade on those effects. They feel a little too light for the environment. I, mm-hmm. I want a little mm-hmm. more contrast out of them personally but i think they were wrestling with oh, if we put too much more contrast they're going to bleed into the the scenery i'm okay with that maybe their their reference on on set said this is what it should look like the reference was wrong in my opinion so i don't know i would have done it differently but at the same time it doesn't kill this movie for me whatsoever yeah what about you are there are there moments that kind of pull you out Hmm. You're throwing my question back at me. Because <laughs> uh, I want to say there was, and I was going to talk about it, but it it really didn't. Mm. It really didn't. No, there wasn't There wasn't any moments. I, The CG was fine. I mean, honestly, how do you make 10,000 zombies climbing over each other look real? You don't. You don't. You, you just do it, right? And then you put it in the movie. And you show it sparingly, but enough to be like, holy crap. Yeah, no, the pacing was fantastic. It was, it was fun. The acting was wonderful. The directing was fantastic. Like I didn't notice the cinematography, to be honest. Yeah. I didn't notice it. It was one thing I did want to call out. I wanted to say this, uh, save this for the end because it's really what makes a zombie movie is the music. And Muse did for this, Muse did the theme for this movie. This did is they a really? Track. Yeah, yeah, this is Muse. And they wrote it specifically for World War Z. And I think Brad actually, because he produced this, he was a producer on this film, he actually sought them out to do it. Yeah, so they did it specifically for this film, wrote an, an instrumental. And, you know, at the end, if you listen to the music at the end, it gets, it's the, it's the theme and then it gets bigger and, you know, there's guitar and stuff like that. And you can hear Matt Bellamy singing in the background. So he does sing a little bit on it, but, but it's fantastic. It's one of those, those scores that feels inevitable. It's just like, of course. Yeah. Why would this be anything other than what it is? (laughs) Exactly. It's. It feels eternal it's, to me. Like I've heard it a million times before, but it was. It's almost like Hans Zimmer wrote it, honestly. <laughs> you know, it's just perfect for that thing. And why doesn't every zombie film have this exact thing? Oh, they have a version of this. Most zombie films have some kind of yeah. version of of something, some driving instrument. Mm-hmm. You know, this just happens to be a piano because pianos the greatest instrument of all time and Matt Bellamy is an amazing pianist. So why not? 
but is fantastic. And not only is the theme fantastic, but their use and not use of it is fantastic. You almost forget about it. And then all of a sudden it'll sneak in the clip that you just, that you just played. You know, you have Brad telling the doctor stuff, but there is no theme. The theme, they bring the theme in when the doctor is, is like telling you is basically foreshadowing, you know, what's going to happen, you know, or when some kind of thing, when it's important, when some, something important is happening and it wants you to pay attention, they use the theme because all of a sudden there's this like feeling that that, that, that music brings up out of you that makes you want to pay attention. It's like the motif that is going, you know, you go back to, I mean, I, a lot of great films do this. Social Network is a fantastic example of that. Go watch The Social Network and listen to what Trent Reznor did. It will blow your socks off. Like <laughs> It's probably the best example of that. But it, this is another great one. And, and the timing of it, and not just in that scene, but in several other scenes, it just reminds you where you're supposed to pay attention and that it's even there. And it makes me love the movie. It just yeah. makes me love the movie. That actual, the, the music, I think if the music were different, I probably feel, feel way different about this film, but from the onset, the very beginning, you hear the theme. It's, it's just beautiful. Sets the tone. Freaking perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love all the audio in this film in general. Um, and Agreed. that's pretty hard to do in terms of making an amazing score and using it right. Because it, it can be tempting to have like, oh, we got to use that again and to overplay it. Uh, and they yeah. they reserve it, like you said, to these very specific moments that are underscoring significant moments in the film. And yeah, it's genius. Yeah. I mean, other there are other ways to do it that are more, I guess, thought out or or heady. And Social Network is a good example of that where it just builds and there's it's playing, but there's a different version of it that's playing. Right. Yeah. They don't do that here. There's like no bells and whistles. It's just, here's the music. Okay, here's the music again. And here's the music again. All, all exactly in the same way. Just it's the timing of it that oh, is important. Yeah. Not, not that they changed it or did anything else with it. And because it's so good, you never get bored with it. And they only play pieces, like little bits yeah. of it. You know, you'll get like 30 seconds of it with the doctor and then it's gone. You know? <laughs> Not even 30, 20 seconds. Yeah. Right? And then it's gone. And then you don't hear it again for 25 minutes. And then there's the lack of of, of soundtrack too. Is brilliant. It's perfect. You, you know, really feel lets... exposed and vulnerable because now there's yes. nothing covering. Instead, all the ambient, all the footsteps, everything that you're seeing is heightened that much more because you mm -hmm. hear everything. So sound becomes a very important indicator of uh, the safety of your characters. It's so easy to use music as a crutch or yeah. a score as a crutch yeah. <clears throat> to, to make it, to, to just make the film like flow. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. But take them, take the music out and watch them, watch the film without it at all. And if you, if it can stand on its own without it, I mean, I would argue just don't even use it. <laughs> I mean, that, that would be the argument, right? Yep. Because then you've got a great film. I completely right. agree. Like it's, of course, it's always easy and it, there's tons of great uses of 
like having music to kind of cue the audience in on an emotional beat. But I completely agree with what you just said. Like uh, if the scene can work without the music, then you really need to think about why you want the music in there. Mm-hmm. And it drives me crazy every once in a while, like a project I recently did, there were some scenes in there that I did not want music in that the client did. And so I, you know, end up having to do yeah. what the client asked. But uh, I was like, man, this scene actually really, really clicks and pulls you in a lot harder if if you, you know, just let it play out. But yeah, great note. Yes, completely agree, man. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Anyway, this is fun, man. Agreed. God. Yeah. Uh, I might go watch this again. (laughs) (laughs) What are you going to recommend this week? This week, I'm going to recommend The Nightmare Before Christmas. Ooh. Just, you know, it's Halloween. It's not Christmas yet, I know. But it's Halloween, and that film is in just blows blows my mind every single year. The, The amount of manpower and time and dedication and love it takes to make a film like that is just, (laughs) just staggering. And the story is beautiful and great and it's it's a lot of fun and it's good for the whole family. So, yeah. oh man, I've worked on at least one stop motion pain pain. Yeah. It was really good. You should put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll throw it in there. Uh, Bruhaha yeah. by written yeah. and directed by our good friend Alyssa Marie. And so go check that out for sure. I'm going to recommend I was on the fence. I uh, and I, I kind of still am. I wanted to recommend The Haunting of Bly Manor. Maybe I'll save that for next week. Uh, it's a new Netflix show. Scott, our, our buddy Scott, was on the show a few months ago. Maybe, gosh, was that December? And he recommended The Haunting of Hill House. And at the time, I hadn't heard of it. Um, and so, or I had, I had been ignoring it willfully because it looked cheesy to me based on nothing. And so I went and watched it and just <laughs> absolutely loved it. And I was like, Wes, you jackass. And so a sequel of sorts, it's not really the same story, but it's a kind of an anthology of uh, haunting stories. And they put out a new one called Haunting of Bly Manor. And it's just epic. And I really want to recommend that. I'll probably recount You just did. I, I know, right? <laughs> but because this is a zombie film, I was like, you know what? People are aware of, but they probably have never watched is the original George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. It go watch it. I think you'll I think everyone would enjoy it. For one, you'll understand immediately that this is historic. And so I don't think you'll hold it against itself that, you know, these are slow zombies and in a traditional sense, because it's not a cliche if you invent it. <laughs> and so yeah, it's true. There's also so many other surprises in the story itself that you're like, oh, he made this in 1968 or released it, probably made it in 66 and 67. But he, you know, he made this in the late 60s and it's absolutely fantastic and has uh, an ending that would surprise the ever living hell out of you. No pun intended. I haven't seen it. Yeah, I think it's worth it. I would be curious to know your reaction uh, of it. It's, you know, probably my favorite zombie film, but because I'm a dork, I'm a pretentious dork at that. And so (laughs) Night of the Living Dead, I'll put a trailer in the show notes along with Todd's Reco. And you can see that, of course, and stay tuned next week. We are going to be covering an old film, uh, relatively old from, I think, 2003. It's called Shattered Glass. 
Now, most of you have probably never heard of this. I hadn't heard of it until our friend Dave recommended it to me. And I went and watched it and it has Hayden Christensen in it and Peter Sarsgaard. Hayden Christensen, if you don't remember, was Anakin Skywalker and Mm -hmm. Attack of the Clones and Sith people, whatever. And so, (laughs) (laughs) sorry, butchered that. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's the title. That's it. I know that. I just IMDb'd it. That's what it says. But he, he's actually a really, really fantastic actor. And I think it's a, a movie worth watching. It's about, and I'll just give you, because it's right there on his face. It's about a, uh, a guy who, invent stories at this is a true story about a guy who invented stories as a as a journalist and i think because when this episode world war z airs this is the week before the election and so next week we'll be you know releasing this the day before the election on a monday instead of a tuesday and i thought shattered glass would be a great way to kind of dive in lightly into i debated all kinds of movies to cover for the election, I debated doing Election, which is a 99 film with Matthew Broderick and, gosh, not Kirsten Dunst. Bullworth. Um, uh, Bullworth, um, uh, Reese Witherspoon. And so many films, and none of them felt just right. Idiocracy, I debated. None of them felt completely right, and so I just decided, eh, we'll just go slightly left and, and discuss uh, the media as, a, as an act of analyzing politics and so uh, we'll touch on that and maybe i'll set todd loose at the end so he can have five minutes to we we do a really hard strict job of keeping this about movies and not getting political if the movie goes political we'll we'll certainly let it go there and but we try really hard to not be offensive to anyone we want, we want this to be a safe space that people can come and kind of eject out of society for a little bit and and feel you know welcome like we're not judging everyone in the world based on this that and the third but maybe next week i'll let todd have his five minutes because i know he has a lot of political thoughts and views and i don't know maybe i'll say a thing or two maybe i'm not i'm not setting this up because i have something i want to say i have nothing but it eh, it's election season may as well let let one of us at a minimum, you know, say whatever he wants. So you have your, not going to say anything, your window. And okay. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> I, I'm sure everybody, I'm sure if, you know, anybody who's listened to a few of our episodes <laughs> knows my stance. I don't yeah. need to reiterate it. Okay. Especially right before an election. Yeah. Not going to change anybody's mind. And not that I would, I would hope not. I would no. hope I wouldn't change anyone's mind. You, you, you know, vote how you want to vote but i will have opinions on that film yeah I will absolutely come with those and so y'all should come okay. listen to that then <laughs> <laughs> no i know like it's fun you don't have fun to i know i know it is fun i i i mean i might say a thing or two okay. for sure because you know i say this yeah you say that now we're gonna go on a tirade <laughs> you know it'll, uh, we'll it'll be interesting. it depends on it really dude it depends on the week before what happens in the week leading up to mm. when we record, right? If a lot of stuff happens and I'm just like, like PO'd, then I might have to unload. True. But if it's relatively, you know, docile, then. You as know, as times usually play. are. Um. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Right. It'll be fun, I think, one way or another. And then after we, we covered Shattered Glass, we're going to go on a whole new, I don't want to say binge, but a whole new uh, exploration of uh, certain film types. And you'll know what I mean. Thanksgiving movies. Yeah, that's Wait. right. All Thanksgiving. They don't, what, 
Yeah. Wait, have they movies ever made that a Thanksgiving have carved movie? turkeys in them? No, we've never done <laughs> Thanksgiving movies. <laughs> um, we are going to do National Lampoons during Christmas, though. Ooh, wait. Which I don't one? think that we've done it. Have we done it? I Christmas, can't remember. When we I don't did, even know what we did done. Christmas vacation last year. We did. Let's do it again. Because <laughs> this is <laughs> why not. <laughs> All right. Uh, so if yeah. you want to leave a note on this episode, you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash World War Z. And our quote of the day is from George Romero. I don't think you need to spend 40 million to be creepy. The best horror films are the ones that are much less endowed. I think that's interesting. I don't yeah, 100% agree with it in terms of uh, the best horror films are the cheaper ones. Uh, because I think of like The Shining. That had a pretty healthy budget for its era. And... But at the same, but I understand and I agree philosophically with exactly what he's saying. It costs you nothing to write a good story and to pace it well and to scare people psychologically. Like being creepy isn't a matter of budget. And so you can you can write a really amazing horror film even if you don't have any money. And I think if, if you were to go look at, gosh, I'm going to completely botch this name, Paranormal Activity or Blair Witch Project. Those are just thinking those. very fantastic films, you know, in the horror genre that will freak you the hell out. Like they're very effective. And I think maybe at this point, maybe people look at them and, and would laugh at them, you know, but if you were to go and actually sit down and watch them, you would still, I think, get a really strong effect from the movie because they're really, really incredibly well done. And I love, I mean, personally, I love Paranormal, paranormal Activity. Me too. It's maybe the only film, man, that I've ever went to the theater and the audience was loud and disruptive and I appreciated it and I was still absolutely shook. <laughs> like I was terrified. <laughs> like it got to me unlike any film. And those were like $10,000, $15,000 movies. Like that's absolutely incredible. And it just came down to, you know, strong writing, but good sense of effects that are cheap. Like just smart, smart Spielbergian methodology in terms of what can we do with nothing? <laughs> like, okay, let's yeah. do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause that's what we got. And then just do it. Yeah. And so I love this quote for that reason. Like it's awesome. pointing out that, you know, you don't, this was a $200 million movie. You don't need that to make a really great horror film. Very good point. Absolutely. Fantastic. We finally done it. Yes. World War Z in the books. So we hope you enjoyed this episode, everybody. Make sure to watch Shattered Glass before next week to come ready for that review. And please, you know, share us with your friends and leave us a review and subscribe and all the good things. It all helps us and make a recommendation. Obviously, any recommendations we get, we always try to do. And that's what next week is. So join us next week when we do Shattered Glass. Until then, I am Todd. I am Wes. Go watch some movies. Bye.